I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. It's the seventh book in the Bible. And I want to take us into Judges chapter 14 today. We're going to read the chapter in its entirety. And then we'll begin to unpack some more of the story of Samson, which sits within the bigger series we're we're engaging with, which is on the theme of the Nazarites and the Nazarite vow. Let me pray and then we'll read. Father, we thank you that you have gifted us. Your word is your voice that resonates through the ages and speaks to our condition with a timeless relevance and power. And we pray, Lord, that as we are confronted with some of the mess of a complex character, Lord, that you will, in the gentle way that only your spirit can do, you'll be speaking to us and exposing our own flaws and failings, Lord, so that we will come to you in renewal and transformation. Lord, we want to be ready to listen. Amen. Let me read to you Judges 14 then. If you recall, the previous chapter introduced us to this character named Samson, who, whose birth had been predicted by an angelic appearance and who'd been set apart by God to be uniquely called for a specific purpose in a time of real desperation and uh, a kind of the decline of Israelite worship and religion and the mess that they were in and that they were, they were under the oppression of another people called the Philistines. So God raises up Samson to be a kind of deliverer. But this is how we begin to encounter him now that he's an adult. So Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. They came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him, and Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. 
And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I've not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, or his best man, who had been, who had been his best man. Now, as... A, some of you, most of you are aware, a few weeks ago we began this exploration in the story of these, these Nazarites, this unique breed in Scripture of men and women who um, devoted themselves for a season to God in special consecration. They would take a vow, they would enter into this season in which they would not cut their hair, they wouldn't eat anything that comes from the grape, especially wine, and they would not touch any dead bodies in order to devote themselves to God more fully beyond the ordinary devotion of what it means to be an Israelite of worship. And so we've been interested in this um, this theme and seeking to explore what it means to be devoted to God and really impressed with the reality of the beauty of the call. But at the same time, as we begin to think about what it means to be a person devoted to God and what human devotion has looked like in Scripture and history, we're very quickly confronted. Here in the first story of one of the Nazarites in Scripture, we're confronted with the painful reality of flaws and failings that characterize the way we, we are devoted to God, our, our brokenness. Now, each week I've been mentioning examples of devotion to you because I want you to be inspired. I want to awaken you to the reality of a life that can be wholly given to the Lord and, and provoke you to live that way. But at the same time, I, it would be amiss not to, to recognize that even among our best heroes in history and in Scripture, you see this this dreadful reality that sin taints and affects everything. When, you know, when we think about who we are as evangelical, Bible-believing Christians in the Western world, we owe a lot to massive, towering figures in our more recent history, in Christian history. But so many of them are tainted with flaws. I think about, you know, I'm not sure where we'd be if it were not for Martin Luther, who sparked the Reformation, and help bring so many millions of people into the liberty of the gospel after the, the darkness that had descended upon Catholicism at that, in that era. 
And yet Martin Luther, for all his courage, for all his insight, for all his theological um, astuteness and passion for the Lord, he also was an anti-Semite who in his older years became increasingly angry with the Jewish people who had not responded to the message that he was preaching and wrote angry words against them that no doubt helped fuel anti-Semitism in Germany and in Europe more generally. And so has some culpability, massive culpability for that. I think about another character is Jonathan Edwards, who so many of my favorite preachers reference him as their great inspiration, a man who lived in the 1700s and who was passionately devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and had an incredibly deep uh, walk with the Lord, but was also a slave owner, perhaps not unusual in his day, but it clashes with our sense of what's right and what is righteous, doesn't it? And uh, we have to take that into account when we read history and we are confronted with individuals like this. Or his contemporary, John Wesley, uh, who, you know, along with a number of other preachers in his era, transformed, literally transformed the history of our nation by helping restore many people to faith when things were declining. It was like water swirling around the, the plug hole in the bath in terms of the cultural demise. And John Wesley came along and preached a passionate gospel of, of being born again, believing in Jesus Christ, getting rid of nominal faith and actually trusting him as your personal savior. And so the Methodist church was born largely under his leadership. And yet he had a terrible marriage. And I don't think anyone would call him a good husband. And, uh, you know, by my understanding, that's something of a disqualifying reality for a leader, a minister in the church. And I don't know how to deal with these these contradictions. Wherever you turn in history, you'll find that almost without fail, you're experiencing, you're encountering the failure of Christian heroes. And I don't, I'm not sure that we can stand in judgment because I rather suspect that future generations will hang their head when they consider our failures as a generation and the things that are true of us, you know. Um, how, how, and I don't want to get lost in that conversation, but I can, I can assure you that, that we have our blind spots and our, the ways in which we overlook our own faults and failures. And so it is when you're reading Scripture. One of the things that most impresses me about the stories and the narratives of Scripture is the reality of this, this honest portrayal. That almost no one in Scripture appears to us to be without flaw. Christ, of course, is the towering exception to that. There may be one or two other examples where you're not really aware of the ways they went wrong, like Daniel... But by and large, almost every character is deeply, deeply flawed. And the Bible tells us why, why these stories are told in honesty. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's speaking about the failures of the Israelites. And he says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So you're meant to read your Bible with sober acknowledgement rather than, than, than this being a hagiographical hagio, account, a kind of turning people into saints, rather it's an honest portrayal so that you and I go away and having read these passages become wiser and become more able to see the ways in which our lives can self-destruct and be immolated by our own sin, as is the case with Samson. He's infamous, therefore. He's held up in the New Testament as a hero of the faith. He's listed in Hebrews 11 as one of, the Hebrews of, uh, one of the heroes of faith, but he's also laid before us in honesty here in a passage like this and in the rest of his story that we'll, we'll deal with. 
as a broken, broken man. And I want to explore that with you. The first thing we've got to lodge in our heads before we unpack this passage, though, is this. Behind everything that you read about Samson, the grace and the purpose of God stands. God is at work even in his brokenness. The last chapter that we read, Hebrews 13, uh, sorry, Judges 13, at the end of that, it told us, the very last verse, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, in the camp of Dan. So God's Spirit was on him. Then as you're reading through this passage that we read, Judges 14, you keep hearing about God's work. Verse 4, his father and mother didn't know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Then he encounters the lion. The Spirit of God rushes upon him. And then when he's fooled by his friends in the matter of the riddle, again, the Spirit of God rushes upon him. And so whatever we see about his failings and flaws, I want you to grasp this, that that God in his grace still uses him. There's a saying in English, isn't there, that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. That even if we are not, if we're crooked, if we're broken, if we're bent and, and malformed, God is nevertheless able to use you and me. And this is the hopeful message of Samson. God is at work in and through this, this absolutely broken and flawed man. So this is what I want us to look at then. We're going to think about his flaws, his virtues, and then reflect on its meaning for us. And we're going to spend most of our time on the flaws because there are so many of them. And I hope that the Spirit of God is going to be shedding his light upon our hearts to see ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. So let's begin there. Thinking about Samson's flaws and failures. Remember how he came amidst optimism. The background of an oppressed people, a crushed and broken nation who are under the rule of the Philistines. And God sparks hope with the birth of Samson. Then as that chapter ended, chapter 13 ended, the spirit began to stir him. But no sooner are we introduced to him as an adult than we're immediately encountering a number of his character flaws straight away. There's no effort to conceal this or hide this or whitewash him at all, at all. And here they are. Number one, he's willful and arrogant. The chapter opens telling us that he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He went home and told his parents, I've seen a daughter of the Philistines. Get her for me as my wife. His father and mother were told, said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. You are being introduced to a headstrong person here. I want to make it clear when I describe him as willful that Possessing a strong will is not in itself a bad thing. In fact, I think having a weak will can lead you into all kinds of problems in life and can take you on paths you should never go. It it is its own problem. But to have a strong will is slightly different from being described as willful. Willful means that your will has not learned to be submitted to the authorities that God has put over you. And in Samson's case, 
This is true on two levels. The first level is, of course, that he doesn't listen to his parents. Now, that may not strike you as particularly shocking because of the time in which we live. But, of course, in Scripture and certainly culturally at the time, this is a man who is clearly bucking against authority. And his father and his mother, they plea with him. They say, can't you get a wife from among our people, a Jewish girl? And he's ignoring them deliberately. But more importantly, in ignoring them, he's also ignoring God. Because God had made it clear in the Old Testament law that it was forbidden for an Israelite to marry outside of the faith. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a faith thing because faith is fundamental to who you are as a person in a way that nothing else necessarily is, your faith. And so God's people were forbidden from marrying outside of their faith as they still are today. And yet Samson smashes against the authority of his parents and also then against the authority of the law of God in defiance. He's willful. And it's rooted in a deep, deep arrogance. You might ask, by the way, is it ever right to go against authorities that God has put over you? And I think the answer is sometimes, but you have to be doubly sure that you're in God's will. Of course, that isn't true in this case. He's willful. The second thing you can see here is that he is unteachable, which really is the other side of being willful, isn't it? But I want you to think about this because I think this is often true of us, isn't it? The Bible connects wisdom with the ability to listen to good advice from people who are older, smarter, and wiser than you. So, for example, in in, uh, Proverbs 13, we're told that a wise son hears his father's instruction, but immediately adds that a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And, of course, this is the tension that you see all through the wisdom books. A wise person is someone who can absorb and listen to the wisdom of elders and the traditions that guide and shape a life of flourishing. A fool is someone who disregards what other people have to say. So, again, in, in Proverbs 12, verse 13, it says, and Proverbs 12, 15, rather, it says that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. A way of a fool is right in his own eyes. You're absolutely convinced that you know better than everyone else around you. The Bible says, that's folly, friend. It says, a wise man listens to advice. Of course, this is exactly what we're encountering in, in, uh, in Samson. He's willful, but then along with that is this unteachable heart that in listening to his parents, pleading with him, don't marry a Philistine. They know his mission, by the way, from before he was born, is to begin to save Israel for the Philistines. So what a contradiction that he might choose to marry one, and yet he does. He's unteachable. I think part of me, you know, as I, as I watch and witness the ever-declining cultural chaos that we're in and the way in which society moves further and further away from God, I think at the root of it, one of the fundamental drivers that we've seen in our world at large is this, this cross-generational conflict that ever since the late 50s into the 1960s and 70s, a new culture was birthed in which we idolize youth and disregard the wisdom of previous ages because we saw the mistakes that our previous generations made and some of the, 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 the wrong things that were perpetrated. 
the injustices, everything was thrown out. And it established a new culture. You know, it was, it was characterized by the recent meme, the OK Boomer meme, which is just a way of disregarding anyone who's in their, sort of not, in their 60s or 70s by just, just saying, OK, Boomer. Like just, it's, just, it's just the perfect ad hominem argument the, against the man. So rather than engaging with the argument, you just disregard them because of their age. And the reason why that has spread and why that captures, causes people mirth and, 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 and joy and, and, and humor is because this is actually what's normal to us now. And so there's no wonder, is there, that we're living in this kind of anthropological test tube in which we're constantly wanting to disregard tradition, disregard the past, disregard wisdom, and try something new because everything, everything looks tantalizing to us. And if that's true culturally, friend, I wouldn't be surprised if it's true in your heart also. And to be unteachable is to set yourself up for disaster. He's willful. He's unteachable. Here's the third thing. He's ruled by desire and lust. Now, I think this is obvious in in the way the story is told to us. It's not that that being attracted to the woman is inherently wrong. It's human nature. It's part part of God's design, isn't it? But rather, you've got to ask, what's the difference between attraction and lust? And I think the difference is partly this, that attraction is something you are in control of and that you rule over, submits to your, your will. Lust is something that rules over you. And the more you feed it, the more powerful it gets in your life until it overrules every other consideration, which is why so many people find that sexual sin is the reason why they've walked away from God. Because lust gains mastery over us. I was thinking of this verse in Genesis 4 when after Cain has murdered Abel, God's challenge to Cain, the way it's such vivid language, he says there in Genesis 4 verse 7, he says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And that is the human condition, friend. There are sins crouching at the door, ready to take over, bash in the door and take over your life, but you must rule over it. You must gain mastery over your desires and bring them into submission to Christ. The very thing that Samson fails to do. And the author wants us to see this. I think it's, it's obvious in the way that it's told. The first thing we see Samson do is fall in love with a woman he shouldn't fall in love with. He immediately then goes against the, the better judgment of his parents and of the law of God. And the, it's captured by this phrase that occurs. You may have missed it, but it comes twice in this passage. So in verse 4, it says that Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And then it's repeated a little bit further on in verse 7. She was right in Samson's eyes. Now, if you know the book of Judges, you'll know that this is, this is a code word. This is a phrase that has meaning in Judges because this is what was true of the people generally. It's the last verse in the book, actually, tells us that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is moral relativism. This is you becoming the Lord of your own life, deciding what is right and wrong according to your own judgment rather than according to submission and surrender to what God has to say in your life. 
And whenever you find yourself in a position where the voices and the word of God are contradicting you, but you're saying, no, this is right in my eyes, then you know that you are heading for disaster. And the author of Judges wants us to know that Samson is ruled only by his lust. And it is his undoing. Here's a fourth thing about him. He's secretive. He's secretive. You see this in how the next moment unfolds in the story from verse 5 when we're told that he went down to the vineyards of Timna and a young lion came toward him roaring. And then the Spirit of God rushed on him and he, he ripped it asunder. It seems that the language that's used because it's likened to the, the tearing of a young goat is the, the way that they would, that sometimes in, in making a covenant, they would rip an animal apart by its hind legs down the middle. And so apparently that's the technique that he used on a lion. So bear that in mind if ever a lion attacks you. Hind legs, rip it in, rip it in half. And um, this is what Samson does. And then he, 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 all of this happens without his parents being aware. It says he did not tell, in verse 6, he did not tell his father or his mother what he'd done. And then he goes, meets the lady, returns back, and he turns aside to the carcass in verse 8. There's a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands, went on eating as he went, came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate, but he did not tell them that he scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, the significance of this is going to become apparent in a few moments. I'll explain more of this, but I just want you to log that this sows anxiety in the mind of the reader. On the one hand, you're seeing the strength and power of God being revealed in this character, the way in which God has uniquely gifted Samson is with supernatural strength. I don't think he necessarily even was particularly muscular. He didn't need to train. It's just natural power and might from not so supernatural power and might. But on the other hand, you're starting to see another crack in his character because he's keeping secrets. And he's doing it deliberately. And you need to ask the question, why? Now, secrets are dangerous. Many of us possess secrets. Things that we have not owned up to or confessed to others or are unwilling to divulge. And the danger of secrets is that evil things grow in the dark. Our flat is made of... um, I think the walls are mainly sort of concrete, so they're very cold in the winter. And if there are corners of the flat that are unexposed to light and fresh air and heat, they have a tendency to want to breed mold. We have to keep in control of that. And this is, a, this is the, the truth in our lives also, isn't it? That where there are corners that are not exposed to the the breath of God's spirit to the light of his word and to the the illumination of of, um, his law and then also brought into the light for others and confession and honesty and transparency. Where those corners exist in your life, things, ugly things, multiply. You've heard the expression, the dark web. I'm guessing 99% of us have no idea what it is, but we know it's bad because it's dark. And it's a web. And this is where, this is where, where ugly things happen, right? Where people want to make horrible exchanges of information and people and deals outside of the, 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 the view of the authorities. Well, the same is true in your life, friends. There's a dark web, isn't there? 
the unexposed parts of who we are, and Samson is beginning to show us that he is such a person. Why do you keep secrets? Well, sometimes it's shame. I understand that there is embarrassment and shame that won't allow truth to come into the light. And it doesn't help to keep it there because the gospel deals with our shame. But also it's because of defiance. Sometimes we keep secrets because we don't want others to confront us with truth. And that is certainly the case in Samson's story. Defiance. Which brings us to the fifth thing. He's rebellious. As you know, Samson had been set apart from before he was conceived in his mother's womb to be a Nazarite, specially devoted to God for the entire duration of his life. Very unique thing. And a Nazarite was someone who was called and set apart by God to be holy, to be untainted, uncontaminated, so that they could be used for a special purpose. I have in my kitchen a knife that was gifted to me my birthday this year, a Japanese knife. It's a special object, but it is also fussy. And you can't drop it or it'll shatter, and you cannot... Uh, leave it exposed to water or rust. And of course, despite its exquisiteness, you have to understand how to handle this thing that is set apart for special use. And there was something about Samson. That was God's intention in Samson's life. He had been set apart for special use, as all of us are as Christians, actually. And yet he, he treats it cheaply. And here's how that happens. That when he encounters the lion's carcass and he sees the honey in the body of the lion, he scrapes it out and eats it, even though he's not meant to have any contact with the dead. Now, one thing you see in Scripture is that when you have contamination and sin put against holiness and consecration, the two things are not meant to come into contact because in most cases, the contamination spreads. It overpowers the holiness. With the one exception, of course, of the blood of Christ which has the power to do the opposite, to make holy what is unclean. But Samson is exposing himself to uncleanness. He should have rushed straight to the temple to be reconsecrated to the tabernacle, but he instead goes on his day and doesn't even tell his parents. In this secret place, his rebellion begins to ferment. He's not interested in maintaining a life of holiness to God. He flagrantly disobeys God. Is that true of you, friend? Are you aware of what God has called you to and the holiness he's called you to, and yet you are in defiance of it? Come back. The sixth thing is that he is cocky. As the wedding preparations begin to form, he is supplied with 30 groomsmen. It's about 25 too many by my count, but apparently it was a cultural thing. And uh, they're Philistines. They're from the village in which this young woman has grown up. And Samson puts before them a bet. He says to them, I'm going to put a riddle to you. If you can't solve it, then all of you buy me an undergarment and an overgarment. And if you can solve it, I'll buy those things for all 30 of you. Now, this is a ludicrously expensive bet 
We know this because when these men then turn to Samson's new wife and say to her, look, tell us, they ask her, do you want to impoverish us? So just for each one of those men to have bought a, a new garment for, garments for Samson, it would have impoverished each one of them. That's how much money it would have cost for these handmade um, elaborate garments. But Samson's making it this ludicrous offer because why? He's cocky and he picks fights. He's the kind of guy you don't want to go to the pub with because you don't know who he's going to headbutt at any given moment. And uh, that's what Samson's like. He's just, why? What underlies this? And I think it's because he just has, it's to do with his arrogance, isn't it? He has this belief in his own superiority and specialness. He says, the rules don't apply to me. I'm different. And of course, whenever that thought begins to lurk in your mind, okay, I understand it for other people, but I'm different. The rules don't apply in my case. Then you know that there is at the root of that, this pride, this cockiness that, that ultimately can be your downfall, friend. And here's a seventh thing about him. Despite what you think about Samson, he's weak. He's weak. He tells the riddle to these men. They puzzle for a few days. And then they turn to the wife and they see a way in. And they say to her, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And then she wept, we're told, and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, how you see the very typical ways in which masculine and feminine power can be exerted. The men resort to oppressive violence and threats in order to gain their will. And so often the case that men, men assert themselves aggressively. And the woman results to emotional blackmail and manipulation. She's basically, you know, and the blackmail is this. Samson's thinking, this is my wedding week and I cannot wait to consummate my marriage on day seven. But all she's doing is crying the entire time. I need to fix this quickly. And what you're seeing here is this vulnerability. It's not that he's physically weak. But that at the heart of Samson, this, this problem that keeps reoccurring in his life is that he is he has a weakness of character. He is not resolved to do what's, to, to stick, to have that depth of character and, and certainty of conviction to follow through. There's a chink in his armor. And of course, this, as you, if you know the story of Samson, this is his downfall, friends. This is the reason why ultimately he, he experiences demise. Put this all together he's willful, he's unteachable. He's lustful, he's secretive, he's rebellious, he's cocky, and under it all, he's actually very weak. And you have to wonder, why did God use him? I mean, he literally epitomizes the problem of gifting without character, doesn't he? Which, of course, is commonplace in our day and age when we Literally, when we select people for their charisma and gifting to be leaders and to, to have a success in our world, and we disregard character. But of course, in Scripture, we're taught that God is interested in the heart. He's interested in character. He's interested in what you're made of. And you have to puzzle, why did God use a man like this despite all his flaws? And this brings us to think about the virtues that Samson possessed. And I want to just highlight two to you, that he is both fearless and furious. 
And here's what I mean. He's fearless. And this I want to put to you as a kind of a virtue because I think we tend to think that fear is a neutral matter of temperament. That Some of us are born more naturally bold and courageous and some of us are born more timid and prone to fear and anxiety. And of course, there's some measure of truth in this. But that doesn't mean that fear is a morally neutral issue. And in fact, very often in Scripture, what you realize is that fear is associated at root with sin. I don't want to suggest that's always the case. But I do think that it is often, and more often than we realize, true of fear. So fear is associated with unbelief, an inability to trust God, or it's associated with self-protection and self-interest, so that you're not willing to, to risk your own harm, or it's associated with the lovelessness for others, which is, of course, the other side of self-protection. And you see this in Scripture, and the constant commands, do not be afraid. And so amidst all of the flaws that Samson expresses, the one thing you can say of him at the start is he's actually not a fearful person. And you can see this in his encounter with the lion and how the Spirit of God rushes on him and he tackles the problem. And then, of course, when he's tricked by his 30 groomsmen, what does he do? He goes down to Ashkelon. The Spirit of God is on him. And he kills 30 Philistines and then delivers all their bloody garments to the 30 groomsmen as payment of his debt. Now, this is messy and gory. Welcome to the book of Judges, friends. But I want you to see that that there's a provocation in here. I would put it to you that courage is the godly virtue that is probably most lacking in Christians and in Christianity in our context today. That just as Israel were cowering under the rule of Philistines, and we're told that in verse 4, that they were oppressing, that they were, that time they ruled over Israel. I think so much of the sickness and ill health that you see in Christians individually, and the impotence in the Christians and in the church more generally, is because of a lack of the absence of courage. And therefore, whatever you learn from Samson, and most of it is by negative example, I do think that part of the reason why his story is recorded for us here is because at least he wasn't afraid. God wants to get rid of banish fear from our hearts and make us much more useful to him. And let me add to it this. He was furious. Do you hear how at the end of the passage, after he's been tricked and then he goes and, and make, goes on a rampage in the, that other village. You were told that in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Now, I'm well aware, friends, that anger is a very dangerous thing. The New Testament tells us, know this, my beloved brothers, in James 1, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So I'm very conscious that in most cases, anger is a dangerous and destructive force in our lives that we should not indulge. 
But, but, if you think about James's phrase there, slow to anger, he does not say never be angry. It's one of the characteristics of God that he is slow to anger, but also that he can exhibit wrath, anger. And it seems to me that the absence of anger and the ability, the capacity to express anger can reveal a real spiritual problem in us because it speaks of passivity and apathy and acceptance of the status quo. At least in all Israel, there was one man who had the capacity to express fury against the oppression and trickery and deceit of these enemies. And although, of course, we wage war in very different ways these days as Christians, you have to ask yourself the question, does anything make you angry? Angry enough to act. Angry enough to defy the forces and the powers that are around us. Remember, we be, took a long time just, expose, it just exploring what Paul had to say in Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare. You cannot make war unless you are motivated. And there is a provocation for us here. I think Samson, when you look at his story in the round, and I've told you about these seven flaws of failings and just two virtues, I think that you can think of Samson as being like an axe. You know, I wish... I had a reason to buy an axe. But I can't think of a good use that I'll put it to. I, honestly, I, every time I see them in, in DIY shops, I want to buy an axe. Just to possess an axe. But the frank truth is that I have no use for an axe. And there's almost no purpose to which I can put it. Axes generally are useless instruments in most of our lives. But in certain circumstances, in unique situations, an axe is very useful. And Samson is God's axe. He's flawed, he's limited, but he does one thing very well. He smashes. And he smashes the right people. And it seems to me that God in his grace is able to overlook flaws and failings if he can find the thing that he can put to use. Why does God overlook all these? Well, he has to overlook our mess because otherwise none of us could be used. Right Now, I want to just make a few final reflections before I close. How are we meant to respond and read a story like this? I think there's an encouragement, a warning, and an ache. The encouragement is this, friend. God's desire for you, just as his desire for Samson, is that you would be set apart for him. Because he wants to use you. There is not a single person who is called into Christ's family who does not have a purpose to which Christ wants to put you. He wants to put you to work. He wants to gift you and anoint you and use you. It's part of the doctrine of the body of Christ in the New Testament. Every Christian has a purpose and a calling and a destiny that the Holy Spirit can use you for. It's an encouragement in this, friends. And if you have disqualified yourself on the basis of your past failings and the flaws in your character, I want to suggest to you that you have no right 
because it is God's decision, not yours. That's an encouragement, friend. Come back to him and offer yourself to him, even if you failed. Here's the warning. Samson's flaws will nevertheless be his downfall. I think he is the most tragic man in all the scripture in many ways. Unbelievable potential. Wasted. And you see it here in this passage, how he encounters unnecessary suffering. At the end of this story, the very woman he's fallen in love with is given away to his best man to marry. Now, for all Samson's thick-headed, numbskull behavior, he still had a heart. And his heart would have been broken at this point. Because in his foolishness, he's, he's forsaken the love that he wanted. And as the story unfolds, what you begin to see is that he suffers much, much more. Shame, disgrace, failure, and premature death. And I think there's a warning in here that if the encouragement is God wants to use every single one of you who calls yourself a Christ follower, the warning is this. Just because God is gracious, do not tolerate your flaws and your sin. Because God's grace does not necessarily mean that you will escape the consequences of your wrongdoing in this world. Our sin will cause you to us to suffer. There's a psalm that says that the way of the transgressor is hard. It means that when you choose the path that you know is not given to you by God, you're going to experience suffering, friend. And there's a warning in there, and Samson's story stands out to us as a stark warning. Yes, God uses him. God is gracious. But how much better would it have been if he had walked in repentance and humility and, and godliness? I can barely imagine what he might have become. What you, what I might become. That's the warning. And here's the ache. Every example of failed leadership and failed potential in Scripture and in history and in your own experience awakens within us the ache. It's an ache that only Christ can fill. Because as much as it's right to have heroes and to honor certain people for their gifts, their abilities, the way that God has used them, we have to do so with sobriety because there is only one man, only one man in history whose leadership was not tainted by sin and by the flaws that characterize every other person, Christ. Christ is the better Samson. He had all of Samson's strengths. He was fearless, and when he needed to be, he was furious. And he had none of Samson's weaknesses. He wasn't led by his gonads in the way that Samson was. He wasn't willful and rebellious against the authorities that God had put on him. He was surrendered. He was absolutely in the heart of the will of God, a character that was formed and straight and sweetened by the Spirit's work in forming him from his youth 
in sinless perfection. He had none of his weaknesses. And so, friend, I want to call you. The urgency of this is to come back to Jesus. May God, as we look in the mirror of this story, may God expose your flaws so that you can repent of them. But may he also empower you in your strengths and the virtues that he's put inside you, that he will use you for his purposes. And in and through it all, may the Lord bring you back to the lordship of Jesus, the true leader, the perfect example, who honored the Father, was led by the Spirit, and led us into liberty and freedom.